Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. For free. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I love this episode. Uh, we get seriously weird and also sciencey, but in an awesome and and um, really accessible way with two scientists. Before we uh, dive into that, though, uh, three pieces of business. Uh, the first is that we're trying this experiment where we're setting up a hotline uh, where you can call in and leave me a message with a question. You can ask anything you want to ask. I mean, if it's really crazy, we probably won't use it, but just go for it. Who knows? Um, and the the number for the hotline is 646-883-8326. 646-883-8326. And uh, we'll, we'll put this in the show description um, of the episode description, and I'll post it on Twitter so you can find it there, too, if you don't feel like writing it down right now. Why are we doing this? Uh, because in part, well, one, we think we thought we thought it'd be cool. Uh, Josh, one of the producers of the show came up with the idea, uh, two, because it's, it's, uh, it actually dovetails nicely with this other big project I've been working on, which is this book called meditation for fidgety skeptics, which is coming out on December 26th. And we're going to post this podcast in conjunction with that. The idea is it's the time of year when people are setting new year's resolutions. And one of the big ones is meditation. And of course, creating a new habit is really hard. And uh, so the book is all about how to get you over the hump. Uh, we we look at all the myths, misconceptions, and self-deceptions that stop people from meditating and kind of systematically demolish them. By the way, if you want to pre-order the book, you can. Anyway, uh, one last blatantly, nakedly self-promotional thing to say, which is that a lot of people have been hitting me on Twitter asking why the 10% Happier app is only available on Apple products, but it is now as of today, available on Android. So yes, my producer's on the other side of this glass clapping. Uh, So go for it. Go check it out. And uh, I'm really happy because I think a lot of folks will be able to benefit from it. Um, All right. That's all of uh, all all the uh, self-promotional things I wanted to say. But back to today's uh, episode is really, really good. I know I say that every week, but this is really, really good. So we got a pair of scientists. The first is uh, Chuck Raison who I met many years ago when I was doing one of my first stories about meditation. This guy is awesome. He's just funny and smart, and um, he's a psychiatrist, and he now is at the University of Wisconsin. Um, he's done he's done a lot of stuff. You'll hear him uh, tick off his resume. But what makes him interesting to me is that he's done a lot of work on the this most esoteric meditation practices you can imagine. I guess you could call it sort of the weird stuff, like um, the special breathing technique called TUMO, where guys uh, and and women, I guess, too, can manipulate their body temperature uh, through this special breathing technique. And actually, some people have been known to sit outside in the Himalayas in winter with wet towels on their backs, and they can dry them through using this meditation practice. He's studied that. He's also studied this thing called the dark retreat, which is where you live without light for several weeks, which has been done by the Tibetans for a long time. And um, so he's awesome. And um, he's just, as I said before, also really funny and very interested in, uh, speaking of weird stuff, in psychedelics and their impact on the mind. And he's also has a lot to say about depression. As a matter of fact, he, you'll hear, uh, has a lot to say about this new book he's written about depression and what meditation can and cannot do for that. And his co-author on that book is a guy named Vladimir Malatek, who is a clinical professor of neuropsychiatry and behavioral science at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine. And he's really awesome, too. Also a meditator, has a lot to say about the impact on depression, which is something I have dealt with most of my life. Uh, so I am keenly interested in that. Uh, so a lot of build up there, but I think it's really worth it. Here we go. Chuck and Vlad. Thanks, gentlemen. Nice to, nice to see you both. Thank you for the invite. Yeah. Um, so let's just do some – let's get the, get some biography out of the way here. Chuck, how did you – well, you know, it's interesting. I met you years ago, and I recall – I could, I could I could recall incorrectly that you were a little coy about whether you actually meditate. Uh huh. Do right. you? I'm meditate? still coy. I'm, I'm still coy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's an interesting thing, Dan. Uh, yes, but I'm a bad meditator, um, and I'm an inconstant meditator. And w- 
it, there's been a couple of times in my life where I did it more consistently that were really sort of transformative. But, you know, I think, and this is what I always say, um, you know, a lot of the work I've done has not been around mindfulness, but it's been around compassion training um, with folks down at Emory, you know. And I think I've been more impacted by the content of the meditation, you know, because it's an analytic meditation. So it, it it comes with all this sort of normative stuff. Sorry, and, wait, unpack, unpack that. What's the difference for those the, for the uninitiated between <laughs> mindfulness meditation and compassion meditation? When well, you call it analytic, what does that right, mean? Right, right. So this is a guy, Dalai Lama's always talking about this, right? Um, it, it, it's really, I mean, a lot of Tibetan Buddhism is sort of this sort of more analytic stuff. So, you know, mindfulness generally is, is a skill in, of sort of, observing the contents of one's mind or the environment and not getting sucked in and not getting drifting and stuff like that. Um, compassion training, all the different compassion meditations start with mindfulness. But then, um, and for instance, the, the, the one that was, that was developed at Emory, uh, by analytical. So instead of just non-judgmentally watching your thoughts, you actually try to use meditative concentration to uh, evaluate why you have the reactions to things that you do. So there, there's really an attempt not just to sort of accept what comes up and goes out of your mind, but to change it. Th- that's the first thing, right? And so analytics. So for instance, compassion training, the goal of the training is to develop this sort of universal compassion, right? So I mean, if you really, you know, go all out, you you develop this sort of intense caring for, for all people, regardless of sort of how you feel about them uh, humanly. And so you have to do that. Uh, you have to sort of break down your your kind of evolved basic human tendencies to either be overly attracted to something or overly, you know, kind of repulsed by something or this larger tendency just to ignore stuff that isn't of direct, you know, interest to us, direct survival interest. And so instead of just watching your thoughts, the first move, for example, in compassion training is to try to challenge, well, you know, why do you feel that way? You know, why do, why do I really like Vlad and why, you know, why don't I like you? And and you really kind of analyze, well, you know, are you so different? And uh, so it, it, there's a long thing to it, but that's what the analytical part is, that you're actually trying to challenge and change your sort of spontaneous perceptions. So you, you're, you've been looking at sort of the Tibetan lineage of compassion training. Yeah. I come out of the the old school Theravada, yeah, loving which, kindness, more. love it, yeah, mm-hmm. where you picture people and then send them good vibes. You, this thing you're talking about and have studied, yeah, sounds quite different. Well, yes, uh, it's it's it, there's more sort of intellectual freight along with it. It it the, the 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 thing that was evolved at Emory really comes out of the Dalai Lama school, you know, and the Dalai Lama, the Gelug school. They're they're much more they're, they're a bunch of logicians, so they very much believe that you need to have a clear sort of intellectual understanding of these sort of concepts like emptiness or non-attachment. Um, and so there's more of that, but it also includes the same thing, right? So it, uh, at its highest form, it actually includes something called tonglen, you know, which is the sort of exchange of self for others. So exactly what you're talking about, where you visualize somebody um, and you imagine uh, giving away all the good things in your life to them and taking on all of their suffering. Um, that doesn't sound like a good. No, deal. it's a it's a it's a it's a really paradoxical practice, and it's hard for people. So you know the 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 the, the trick is they start with people. So they say, okay, start with somebody you spontaneously care about, and you want to see good things for them, right? So that's easier, right? You know, if you if you if you love a child, like you know my my sweet little boys, there, yes, I would I would do that. I'd probably do that spontaneously, right? And then so once you practice that for a while and get a feel for it, you then move on to the people you're sort of ignoring uh, that don't generate much of a thing for you. And then finally you go to the people that, you know, in Buddhist nomenclature would be your enemies, but, you know, the people that just you don't like, they're opposing you, and that's hard. If you do it seriously, people can really – I mean I've known people that have had panic attacks trying to do this because it's – if you really get into it and you really think about what that implies, mm, dang, I, you know, that, that's, that's way above my pay grade. But I think the thing that, that has impacted me out of this training, uh, not being on the pursuit of Buddhahood, is this idea that if you can loosen these sort of evolved, overly tight uh, it reactions and be sort of more open and recognize that even people you don't like are humans that are, you know, if you think they're they're doing things that are counterproductive, they're trying to be happy like you are. And so what you want to try to do and what this practice, I think, offers sort of in the shallows is 
a recognition that we have these opportunities to get these win-win scenarios, right? So instead of, you know, if we're trying to do something and I'm conflicting with you, instead of just, you know, I'm going to, you know, take you apart, is there some way that we can find the most optimum way where we each benefit? Because especially in the modern world, there's so many variegated opportunities to benefit that, you know, I, I could get 100% uh, and just cause an enemy for life and give myself a heart attack, or I can get 55% with you and we'll both be happy, and then there's 55% over here and 55% over there. So really, that's why I try to explain it to people, uh, you know, that it, on the human level, it just opens up a sort of openness and freedom that lets you take advantage of this remarkable sort of social connectivity that humans have, and then also just the manifold opportunities that exist in the modern world that we so often close ourselves off to because, uh, you know, we're so pissed off at the person that's at the desk next to us and we get, you know, and you just miss these opportunities. So that's, I think, the, the – but it, that has really impacted my life. It, I can see a number of places where it's softened. Uh, and then, you know, the other place, not to go on too long, but the other place that it's helped me. It's it, a podcast that, though, it's designed to go on. Good. All right. Well, then we'll go on for a yeah. little bit longer. So the other place that's really helped me is in the opposite, people that you overly uh, invest in, people that you, you know, that you, that really grab you, you know, let's say like a love relationship, like a romantic love relationship. Um, it's helped me a great deal over the years to recognize that, you know, there's nothing wrong with idealizing somebody and thinking the sun and the moon rise in their eyes and all this sort of stuff. But there's something to be said for recognizing that, that that's an overvaluation. Just like if I dislike you too much, that's a, a breach with reality. In the same way, if I, if I overvalue somebody, it's also a breach with reality and it sets you up for disappointments if you take it seriously. And so kind of – and then finally, you know, sometimes I'll do this practice. I'll just walk down the street and try to notice people I'm ignoring. And that's an interesting thing when you do that. So, so anyway, long answer to a short question, but bad meditator. But I've, I mean, I've been hugely impacted by meditation and by the content of meditation. Bad meditator in the sense, do you mean that you're inconsistent? Uh, Correct. Or do you, okay. Yeah, so, I'm both inconsistent and bad, <laughs> meaning that I don't do it as often as I should, uh, uh, even that I think I should, and then I, I don't have. Uh, I'm not very good at it. Yeah, well, I'm always suspicious when somebody says they are good at it. Yeah, and you should be, right? But then sometimes, like I could be a great master just pulling your chain, right? Because if I was a meditation master, I'd tell you I was a bad meditator. But in this case, yeah, no, I'm I'm not very good at it. Um, but like I say, I just, you know, when I first discovered it in the 90s, um, man, it the realization that all my thoughts were focused on myself, I mean, it, it's, it's, it doesn't seem very spectacular, but to feel it profoundly and to see it, Man, I mean, I was, you know, just coming into early midlife, and it was such a showstopper for me that that, that just changed. That's the other sort of just – it really changed my perspective on things to realize, wow, I'm just totally living in my own head all the time. That is exactly what happened with me. Vlad, I promise I'm going to get to you soon. But just now <laughs> that I got him on the hook, I'm going to yeah, yeah, keep, yeah, <clears throat> keep coming at him. Um, so you, w- when you discovered this midlife, you were doing what at the time? And then what happened to your life as a consequence of having discovered the practice? Well, okay. So I was a psychiatrist and I was a clinical psychiatrist. I, I ran the emergency psychiatric room at UCLA. And I was, uh, I'd been kind of a, I mean, I'd been kind of this kind of shy nerd as a kid. And I'd sort of blossomed as a... Uh, Don Juan in my 30s, right? And so I was, you know, I was in L.A. and I was having a great time and I was dating all these women. And I, I it's very much like a Buddhist thing where you kind of go through things and you begin to see the suffering of things that initially look very good, right? And I'd, I'd kind of come to this pass in my life where I, I things that I thought would fulfill me uh, had manifestly failed. And so I, I sort of hit this point where um, again, sort of in good Buddhist practice, I, I'd seen the world a, a bit as being on fire, right? You know, and so I was, I, I was in a personal space where I was craving something past that. And at that moment, I literally was in a uh, in a bookstore and I picked up a little book on on Buddhist meditation and I started reading it. Do you remember and, what the book was? Oh yeah, it was a Jetson Pema book. Um, it was it was a little ditzel one, but it was kind of a compendium of some of her stuff, you know, because she. Man, you know, her articulations of compassion and emptiness are really, really powerful. Man, that woman can write. Um, and I, I just I, – I, I didn't have exposure to it. You know, I'd read Zen stuff as a teenager. Just, you know, but, I mean, I, I, I cannot believe somebody's saying this. Oh, my goodness, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, it really it really impacted me. So I started going to meditation centers, and then I kind of fell in with the Tibetans. And that was this huge impact on my life. You know, I just – 
crazy thing where I hosted the Dalai Lama's sister at this big dinner, and I just t- Tibetan stuff just arose. And so I, you know, I had these Tibetan, you know, monk buddies, and they taught me all. So anyway, I just kind of, it just my, it, I got this whole different way of looking at the world. That uh, man, it just rocked me, you know. And and you ended up studying absolutely. a lot of this. Oh, absolutely. And oh, yeah. One of the things that interests me that's really stuck with me because I met you when you were at Emory. You're now yep. at the University of Wisconsin. Yep. This was. I think 2009, 2010 it was yeah, a while ago. It was a while ago. Yeah. You had studied, um, you had done a bunch of interesting studies about um, the compassion practice right. and what kind of impact it has on people. You were looking at it, the impact on children in foster homes, Correct. teenagers, yep. and also you had done this study where you had people um, who had done compassion meditation uh, um, and they wore like little tape recorders. Uh-huh. And you found that the people who had you had a control group, and then the people who had done this uh, had done the practice, yeah. and those who had done the practice were laughing more, socializing more, and using the word "I" less, which yeah. I thought was really cool. Uh, but you also have studied esoteric practices. Though. Oh, yeah, like something called Tumo. Uh, Tumo. Oh, well, I tried, you know. So, so you know what happened? But this is how I became sort of this immune system researcher. Was I was at UCLA, and this because of this sort of. Poofed with the meditation. I, I did. I became good buddies with a guy named Lobsang Rapke, brilliant, brilliant Tibetan, uh, then a monastic, um, but a psychologist and a philosopher. Um, and, uh, you know, he began to teach me about this stuff. And I was like, wait, 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 what? You mean these guys, uh, they, they, they spend eight hours a day trying to manipulate their body temperature? Because in this practice, what they, they basically try to generate all this, this body. This is Tumo. Tumo, yeah, yeah. They try to generate all this body heat. And they, there's this, uh, it, it, we could spend a whole time talking about this because it's really interesting. But essentially, they see this link between raising their body temperature and rapidly achieving enlightenment. And they feel that all the tantric practices are based on this tantric sort of practice. Can you yeah. start just to define the, that? Yeah, these these practices. They're they're practices in the in Mahayana Buddhism, the, the kind of Buddhism of Tibet, that seeks to use bodily energies, evolve bodily energies to transform consciousness into Buddhahood rapidly. So, their idea is that if you if you just do it through the mind, you know, the mind is so flighty and 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 unreliable that it takes. What do they say? Three kalpas. Each kalpas, you know, the universe gets destroyed and remade endless times within each one. It takes a long time to get there, right? Uh, if you can, if you can harness these problematic bodily energies, sexual energies, heat energies, you know, if you can harness them and redirect them, you can drive. You can literally drive the transformation of consciousness very rapidly within a lifetime. They say. So that's what Tantra is. It's essentially this idea that the body has these energies that can be misused, as we tend to do from their perspective in this realm, or they can be channeled. And then you can really – it's like atomic energy, man. You can build a bomb or you can build a reactor. So they want to build a reactor, right? And I, I, I was a – the other thing I did as a psychiatrist was I was a medical psychiatrist. I saw all the sick people in the, the hospital at UCLA. And so I'd really been primed to recognize that the body affected how people felt. And, and so – this idea that the body could be a reservoir of transformation became a really central thing. It's a central piece of a lot of the work I do and, and a lot of the non-meditation work. It's the same idea that bodily processes can signal the brain in ways that can produce these sort of powerful transformative events. And the Tibetan Buddhists had totally tapped into that. There's a huge relationship between how the body manages heat and how the body man- or the brain manages emotions. And, and that's actually what got me started as a researcher. I became hell-bent on studying TUMO. And I went to Emory to study TUMO because they had this kind of great mind-body science. And they had my buddy Geshe Lobsang, and they had this Tibetan thing. And we tried and we tried. And, and we got this is as far as we got. We got to the abbot of one of the great TUMO monasteries came to town. And he had a thing for Brazilian steakhouses. Go figure. So I... I brought these two robed Buddhist monks into this Brazilian steakhouse, which was worth it just for itself. And the whole place just totally stopped, you know what I mean? They weren't used to seeing monks in the Brazilian In Atlanta, yeah. Yeah, in the Brazilian steakhouse, you know. And so we made the pitch to this, this, this abbot, and he didn't say anything. He just looked at me, and then all of a sudden he just interrupted. He said, you know, our great Tuma master was touring uh, India recently. He went down to see the holy sites. And I go, what, what, what's he talking about? I said, I, I said, yeah, and he said, you know, and he couldn't practice his tumo because he was constantly around people. And I said, you know, and he said, but, you know, finally he was able one day to sneak off by himself and he began doing tumo under a tree. And I'm like, uh, okay. And he said, and you know what happened? He said, there was a goat. The goat was curious and the goat wandered over and started watching the tumo master. And 
And I sort of looked at him. He said, he said, you know what happened to the goat? I said, no. He said, the goat went blind. And I realized I was the goat. And that was the end of my Tumo career. And that was the end of my career as a Tumo researcher. So, yeah. But, but you did then you – I'm going to put a pin in this because I'm going to okay. go back to it because we're neglecting Vlad badly here. But you, you also then mentioned to me the last time I saw you, which was much more recently, was when the Dalai Lama was, was last in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin like yeah. a year and a half ago. You said you were looking at another – esoteric Tibetan tantric practice called the dark retreat. Oh, yes. So, okay, we're going to get to that. Okay, I, I, haven't, I haven't done it yet, but okay. we've got it. Yes. All right, but I, I don't want to be rude. Uh, so we just met Vlad, uh, so I don't know anything about you. Uh, are you a meditator? Are you into this stuff? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I am into this stuff. In terms of my personal meditation practice, I would say uh, very rudimentary and very intermittent. Uh, the aspect that fascinated me are neurobiological aspects of meditation, especially mindfulness meditation. Um, in, in terms of the pattern of activity in the brain that occurs in context of mindfulness meditation, it was remarkable how it is almost the exact opposite of what happens in the brains of individuals who are depressed. And that kind of juxtaposition of depression and mindfulness meditation and uh, potential to reverse the process of, of depression, or at least uh, as it is present in some individuals, uh, also relying on mind-body processes uh, was just fascinating. I, I've, uh, I've had lifelong struggles with depression and I'm an eight or nine year meditator. And right. I found, although I don't have any evidence to prove this other than the evidence of my own uh, subjective experience, that it's quite useful for um, mitigating, if not alleviating, depression. So uh, just looking at the pattern of activity that occurs in context of depression, again, this is in some individuals. This is not a universal phenomenon in depression. Uh, there is excessive activation of something that's called default mode network. And it is essentially a self-referential network. It's an area of, of regions in the brain known as the default mode network. There are multiple yes. regions in the brain that are all interconnected. And these are the regions that fire when we're thinking about ourselves. When we're thinking about ourselves, uh, when we are reminiscing, uh, when, oddly enough, when we are composing music, hmm. where we are, when we are analyzing social information. But in individuals who are depressed, uh, it is active in association with essentially becoming an enclosed unit. Um, in usual cir circumstances, when there is any kind of negative emotional experience, uh, it activates different uh, uh, brain network, and, and this is a so-called cognitive executive network, and we start problem solving. We start uh, trying to understand what it is that is making us unhappy or sad, and how can we change it. In individuals who have major depressive disorder, uh, access of uh, in negative emotional experience does not activate problem-solving part of the brain. It activates default mode network and leads to elaboration of this negative experience and number of associations from the past. Uh, we often refer to it as, as uh, uh, going to our Rolodex of misery. Mm. And we start thinking about all the unhappy events that have occurred in the past. And that ends up being an amplifying feedback loop. Uh, at the same time, we're closed off to external experience. So we are internally oriented. We're stuck in this uh, a, a loop that perpetuates negative feelings. On the other hand, individuals uh, who suffer from major depressive disorder, who engage in mindfulness uh, meditation, seem to be able to get out of this loop. And, and uh, looking at the neuroimaging studies, what happens, uh, all of a sudden, that hot wiring bet between salience network, the part that uh, brings about these negative feelings and default mode, negative, uh, default mode network is interrupted. So wait, so we run through the, the salience network? That's a different network. The salience network is a different network, and, and that is the network that processes essentially all sensory information. So it's and what's coming at me from the world. Coming at you from the world. And then, if there is something important coming at you from the world, sensation becomes translated into emotion. And that emotion in adaptive uh, state will then drive adaptive response. In depression, it drives default mode network. So what happens in individuals who have major depressive disorder and engage in mindfulness meditation, it interrupts that kind of aberrant maladaptive link. 
And it's really interesting because looking at what else can disrupt the functional default mode network in those circumstances, uh, interestingly enough, the pattern of brain activity in individuals who are in love also opposes this state that is present in depression. Uh, there are Eastern. So, if you fall in love, it's a good. Would it be an antidote to depression? Uh, you, you know, it's uh, on what she's one, like, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> if one if one is in happily in love, I've seen miraculous transformations in in my depressed patients. But there are some. Uh, of course, to a degree, that depends on luck. But walking in the nature doesn't. And there is evidence that individuals uh, who walk through the nature also have an experience uh, uh, an experience that uh, disrupts the function of default mode network that we are likely to observe in context of major depressive disorder. I'm, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, the, walking in nature can get you out of your own head. Being mm-hmm, in love can get mm-hmm. in the right context and mm-hmm. get you out of your own ruminative spiral because you're thinking about somebody else. Mindfulness meditation can do the same thing. And interestingly enough, something that has been a point of fascination for and research for Chuck, uh, psychedelics can have a very similar effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, preliminary evidence suggests that they actually may have room in our our armamentarium for treatment of major depressive disorder. But that's controversial. Uh, I would say uh, the controversy, uh, to a degree, is associated with certain moral views of of psychedelics. But uh, uh, if we look at the context where it has been used uh, for scientific purposes, there is really – I don't know if you would disagree, Chuck. There is really not a whole lot of controversy. It's pretty interesting. I mean, so this is the other thing I do, basically. I. You do a lot of stuff. I do. You know, you, you know the you know that drill, right? <laughs> yeah, you know. You, yeah, I'm not the anchor of two major network news shows, but yes, I do. So, you overestimate how much work that entails. <laughs> I doubt it. Um, yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, in fact, there's some really interesting. Yeah, acute psychedelic stuff is is it does share a lot of. I mean, this, this guy, the folks at Hopkins have shown this, shares a lot of overlap. It it, it does exactly that. It, it unwires the default mode network. Um, and then causes all sorts of kind of wild, crazy connections, which is why people, I think, probably have these unusual experiences. Um, and then it's interesting, though. It rewires it differently when it comes back in. But, yeah, there is some pretty in- interesting evidence that and, – and this is a, a much of my research these days – is actually trying to do the types of studies. Um, and this is – I'm only part of a larger group of people working on this, but trying to do studies that would support you know, a new drug indication under very carefully controlled circumstances for a psychedelic, for depression. You know, I've been interested in, in trying – I definitely have not done psychedelics. I've done drugs. I've uh, been pretty open about that. Um, I've not done psychedelics and definitely uh, not in the context of a laboratory study. Mm-hmm. But I, I've said aloud in front of my wife that I'm interested in, in – because they're they're studying what psilocybin does for meditators and I've yes, done Johns Hopkins yeah, and I was interested. Yes, role, yeah, I want to have him on the podcast actually. Yeah, you should. And um, – she gets um, sort of freaked out and annoyed, uh, as does my shrink, that by the idea that I would do this, A, given my propensity for panic, mm-hmm. and B, given my history of drug addiction. What do you think? Ah, well, I can tell you. I, I actually know a fair amount about this. There, there doesn't – so if you look at classic psychedelics, um, psilocybin, LSD, um, a mescaline, DMT um, – they don't have an addictive signal in sort of all the animal models we look at. There doesn't seem to be human evidence of their addictiveness. And there's these interesting studies. They've done these very, very large population studies, a couple hundred thousand people, um, looking just simply, just asking people, have you ever done any of these drugs? And how depressed you've been in the last month? Have you been suicidal in the last month? And for all the other drugs, uh, it's, uh, you know, if the midline is I never did drugs, uh, for all the other drugs, yeah, if you've been doing them or if you've done them, you're much more likely to be depressed and, and suicidal. For psychedelics, it's actually protective. So there's this sort of interesting signal uh, just, uh, you know, from that sort of cross-sectional stuff. But as you know, you mean you mentioned Roland Griffiths. So he did a study. And then here in New York, Steve Ross and, and Tony Bossis. And at Jeff, NYU, yeah, right? Jeff yeah, Jeff Gusset at NYU. Yeah. They're both small studies. Um, they were both done in depressed, anxious cancer patients. 
Uh, both studies used a single dose of psilocybin. They, they used different comparators, but they were, they were randomized and, and blinded, although it's hard to blind psilocybin because, you know, people have unusual experiences. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. This, no, it, it, but I'll tell you, it's interesting. The, 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 the regulatory, uh, government regulatory folks have kind of seem to be coming around to that, that, yeah, well, you know, I mean, sue me. It, you, what, what can you do? But, but, you know, it is – there's a comparator – and what's interesting about these studies is these people get one treatment, um, and in the Hopkins study, they, they, they were depressed. I mean, their entry score would get them into any antidepressant trial. Six months later, no other treatments. Um, 70% of them are in remission. It's really striking. And if you talk to – you'd have to ask Steve, but, I mean, they've now been following these people for a couple of years, and, and uh, they saw the same thing at NYU. Um, and, man, a, a huge number of people are – are doing well. And it's not just psilocybin. You know, the, there's another group that I admire greatly called MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They actually just got breakthrough therapy from the FDA, which is a big gonza magilla like green light, uh, to conduct phase three, the kind of studies that would get you a new indication for MDMA, which is ecstasy, for post-traumatic stress disorder. And their data are also very strong. I mean, they have really, really high rates of uh, what appear to be almost cures. I mean, people have – their their protocol is more extensive than ours. They do three sessions. They do a bunch of psychotherapy. But dang, like a year later, you know, the vast majority of people are, are – they don't meet criteria for PTSD anymore, and they're not taking meds. So, you know, these are small studies. Uh, the, the definitive studies will be done in the next four years by us and by MAPS and folks. Um, We'll see. You know, there's a thing called the winner's curse in science, right? You know, you do small studies, you get these big effect sizes, you, you take it out for a drive. I mean, this is why pharma crashes very often. So it could crash. Um, but the preliminary data are pretty interesting. And the fact that the FDA give, gave them, gave MAPS, uh, this breakthrough therapy thing is a pretty powerful testimony that they think that there's something they're worth pursuing because this is a whole new mechanism. One treatment, and people feeling better three, four, five, six months later. There's a small study from the Imperial College folks, Robin Card Harris and those guys over in London. Small study, treatment-resistant depression, same signal, though. You know, three months later, people are significantly better. So so it's interesting, and it definitely seems to have an anti-anxiety effect, too. Now, you know, the acute experience for people can be extremely anxiety-provoking because people often have these sort of emotional, hallucinogenic experiences that often take them, people will report that it's taken them to a place of stuckness in their life or a place of conflict or a place of trouble. And, and it can be very distressing because, you know, it, 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 these are very powerful, real experiences when people are experiencing them. But a lot of times what happens is people, there's something about the experience that it causes them to break through or see some different perspective on it that can often be profoundly liberating for people. I mean, it, it's, you know, this is sort of my, part of my stock and trade. So it, I, I know a lot about this and it's pretty, pretty interesting. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Satisfaction. 
my my shrink's argument, and actually he's a muckety muck at NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, he his argument, so he knows the guys doing yeah, this. Sure stuff. His argument was for somebody like you, Dan, whose brain chemistry is you know fragile at times, and who has panic disorder. Mm-hmm. And has to go on television, like mm-hmm. probably not good to mess with your brain chemistry, given that what you have to do the rest of your life. And I, you know, I mean, I, I there's a certain I, argument to that, isn't there? You, I mean, you think that he may be on something? Well, you I know, because I want him to be wrong, just so you're yeah, rooting against him uh-huh. in this discussion. My rule, and I, you'd probably agree with this, Vlad, in psychiatry, in mental health, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right? That, that's because a lot of times, uh, if 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 it gets broken again, it can be harder fix again, right? So, I mean, always, I think, when if somebody is struggled and they really, and, and it's going well for them, yeah, there's, 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 there's an argument against not rocking the boat, especially, uh, you know, guys like us that are, you know, we're on the edge of, I mean, we're always, I suspect all of us are sort of on the edge of what we can do, right? I mean, and we're living these lives that are really demanding. If it's working, because the thing about, psych, you know, so anything, but meditation can do this sometimes too. Right, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there, there are some people that are harmed by meditation. Yes, we've talked about it on this podcast. You had Willoughby. Yes, Willoughby yeah. and Jared. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, so it's the same thing, right? I mean, the psychedelics give people experiences that sh- can shift them around, and so, you know, I wouldn't recommend it for somebody. Um, I wouldn't recommend it for somebody unless they were in a place where they were symptomatic and other things weren't working. And and I can't even really do that because it's there's no legal way to do it, and we're at the beginning of these data. But yeah, I, I hate to say it, but your your psychiatrist is not without his point. Although it's a pretty interesting thing. I, <laughs> You're killing me. Yeah, yeah. Turn off the microphone. We'll talk. You know, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I w- I would say that. Uh, Unfortunately, we are uh, dealing with, if not black, with gray box. So in certain circumstances, uh, there is preliminary evidence that there can be benefit. Uh, On the other hand, in um, circumstances that have not been explored, it is not necessarily that we have a reason to believe that it can be dangerous. It can can also be beneficial. I think that the honest answer is we just don't know. Uh, but uh, something that might be appealing in context of, of major depressive disorder, uh, there are researchers in MDD uh, who are of a view that major depressive disorder may be akin to consequence of emotional learning. That individuals who have a certain kind of neurobiological predisposition, if they've experienced uh, uh, early life adversity, if they've experienced parental loss, if they've had negative events, uh, that will activate a certain pattern of activity in their brain. Uh, with subsequent episodes, the connections uh, in these neural structures that coincide with the experience of depressed mood and, and, and depression becomes carved in deeper and deeper. And uh, we do know, based on epidemiological studies, that intercurrent stress is an activator of depression maybe in the first four or five episodes. Beyond that, depression becomes self-activated. We really don't need any kind of defined precipitant in order for the depressive episode to come forth to wash over us. The part that is really intriguing is psychedelics are disruptors of learned patterns. Yeah, that's right. So uh, uh, there is deep and one-time emotional learning. Somebody experiences horrific traumatic event one time. The pattern of brain activity is altered in an enduring way. There is nothing externally that needs to perpetuate it. Of course, if there is repeated trauma, it will, if anything, reinforce that pattern of activity. But what if it could be reversed? What if there can be a chemical event that is so profound that much like experiencing trauma, can induce this relatively enduring uh, pattern of activity in the brain associated with the anxiety and over-arousal. What if something can be profoundly effective, chemically induced, that can reverse that pattern with only one administration? So again, there is very fascinating preliminary evidence. The only thing is that this is an unmapped continent. We barely have an idea where the contours of the coastlines lie. 
we have no idea what's in the middle of the continent. So uh, trying to make some specific predictions, this individual will respond this way or that way, I think it is outside of our reach. Uh, but right. at, at, at the theoretical level, it's something that is very appealing and very exciting. And, and this is what – so Roland Griffiths called – I think he really coined it reverse PTSD, right? So that's sort of this model because one of the things that's found in every single study is that the, the, the intensity of the experience, the acute intensity, especially the sort of – the thing that's been most looked at is mystical-type experiences where people have these sort of – non-dual, you know, they feel it kind of one with the universe. They feel that, that life is infused with a meaning they didn't understand or that they're interconnected in ways they didn't realize. Or um, There's, a, there's a, a series of those sort of things. But th- to the degree that that happens pretty nicely in alcohol, in alcohol abuse, smoking, depression, anxiety, the more that happens, the more, the more relieved of their symptoms people are six months later, one month later. So there's, there's something, there's this, there's this repeated... Uh, signal between the phenomenology of the acute event and the long-term outcome. Now, that doesn't mean it's the conscious experience. Conscious experience could be driven by brain changes and it's just along for the ride, or it could be that there's some kind of reentrant phenomenon that we don't fully understand where the conscious experience is then feeding back into the brain. But there's pretty nice evidence that it is this. There's something about having a certain type of intense time-limited experience that sets up some kind of long-term change. And nobody knows what the long-term change is. The most people have looked at now is a day or two afterwards. And, yeah. you know, there's... But there's and whether it's changes. epiphenomenon of rewiring, yeah, or right. is it the nature of the experience? That is very hard to yeah, answer. And are point. those even, you know, questions that have a meaning? It's, it's really hard, you know, where consciousness starts and the wiring ends. But, but anyway, so the point is, yeah, there's something... You know, humans, humans evolved... To have this, uh, if you're a, a skeptic and a downer, this sort of unreasonable sense often that life has a meaning, life has a purpose, that things are interconnected, that the fact that the lion just ate the gazelle doesn't mean that it's just a bloody mess, you know. Um, and people can have experiences where they tap into this sense that there's some deeper unity and meaning. It can happen au naturel, you know. But this is a classic example of one of these ancient practices where people discovered a long time ago that it can also be sort of supercharged, you know, that there's these substances that induce these types of non-dual experiences that uh, can be very powerful for people. And you might imagine, you know, I mean, they, they build social cohesion in groups where if you feel like, you know, you're interconnected with people. And so there are probably evolutionary reasons why, you know, that, that thing evolved in humans. And then humans discover that it can be, you know, that you can, you know, pull a thing off a branch, chew on it, and, you know, pretty soon you're, you know, you're, you're having a kind of a powerful spiritual experience. So it, it does seem to be something about that, that it, whether, it's, whether it's a marker of the wiring that's being activated or whether the wiring being activated produces some kind of you know, conscious experience that then is causative in some way we don't understand. But the data are pretty strong. So it, it's, it's a totally different way of thinking about treating depression. It's, it's not an antidepressant. That's not what it is. It's a, it's a, people say often it's like a year of therapy in five hours. <laughs> That's probably a better way to think about it. When it works, that's what it seems to be. Um, use the phrase unmapped continent. I fear this is – I'm calling myself out as a terrible podcast host, but I fear that you may be an unmapped continent to our listeners because I haven't yet <laughs> gotten you to just give us the basics of your biography. You, you, I just got back from two weeks in Russia. Is your accent – Russian? Uh, it is Slavic, but not Russian. Okay, where so I grew up in Belgrade, what used to be Yugoslavia. Yes. And uh, uh, after a completion of, of medical school, I became interested in, in neurosciences and then spent uh, uh, a few years, four years, studying clinical psychology, and they did postgraduate studies in, in, in neurobiology with this idea of, uh, well, understanding some of the links that, that Chuck is also in, interested in, and that is uh, the link between consciousness and emotion. And and the neurobiological underpinning. That that has been my passion for the last several decades. And how did you get in, interested in meditation, and how does that fit into so, your, your so, uh, original uh, interest? You, you know, a, a meditation, uh, frankly enough, uh, was not something that was a trigger uh, to, ex- to uh, uh, further explore uh, these relationships. Uh, I wasn't – my uh, initial uh, experience with meditation was in, in context of uh, – uh, Eastern martial arts. Uh, so I was involved in Aikido for eight years. And it is something that was both the beginning and end of our, all our training sessions. And it was more kind of an empty mind uh, meditation. 
So uh, that that is the time when it was probably the most consistent and uh, uh, clearly associated with the changes both in in mindset, uh, but also uh, a very keen physical experience uh, that accompanied that type of meditation. So unfortunately, uh, although uh, uh, my colleague who led these practices said, you know, uh, this is the experience and practice that is most necessary at times when you have the least time to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So it is when you are distressed, when you feel overwhelmed, that is when you should find time to revisit uh, 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 meditation. Uh, unfortunately, I, I can't say, uh, I've learned many good things from him, but uh, this is not the one that I could practically apply as often as I probably uh, ought to have uh, in my later life. So where do, what do you do now? So uh, now I'm a, a, pro- a clinical professor of psychiatry with USC School of Medicine, and uh, uh, I teach uh, medical students and residents uh, about neurobiology of major psychiatric conditions. And what is this? You guys just put out this rather thick book, uh, which is, yeah. what is that? True, except for rather, right? I mean, it's very thick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so it's it's called The New Mind-Body Science of Depression, and it's basically – so Vlad's being modest. He He's one of the country's real leading educators of mental health clinicians around the neurobiology of all sorts of stuff. I mean, he's famous in, in those circles, profoundly famous. And so he and I have worked together for a decade uh, doing a lot of, you know, wandering the world, teaching doctors and, you know, nurses and stuff about, about mental illness and about the neurobiology and uh, the biology that underpin them. And so – we were in Columbia. We were we were in Columbus Circle, um, and a colleague suckered us into writing this dang book. Um, it was like midnight. We were laying there at the fountain. The colleague had the good sense to to, <laughs> to exit the project when he saw how difficult it was going to be. But Vlad and I stuck with it, and we said, you know, let's we wander the world talking about all this stuff. This sort of integrated view of what depression is is a mind body disorder. Let's uh, foolishly let's write a book, and so. We started writing a book, and we had a lot to say, and it took us five years. And, you know, yeah, it's like 700 pages. But basically it's this sort of compendium of various views on depression, like what causes it from an evolutionary perspective, from a you know more pragmatic stress, genetics, and then what's its underlying neurobiology and, and, and how does it interrelate with, with you know, the immune system and inflammatory systems and systems in the body and then a bunch that Vlad's done, you know, brilliantly on the brain. And then, you know, we try to do some case studies to show how it applies. But so basically it's this an attempt to provide a synthesis of where we think the field is now in terms of understanding, you know, what 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 depression is. Vlad, what would the evolutionary case for depression be? I mean, it sounds like, like well, if I was on the savanna, right. I'd be dead early because I, I'm mopey and not moving fast. And, you know, that is where we started. We started with a question like that because if depression indeed reduced reproductive fitness, evolution would have eliminated depression a long time ago. Yet it not only has persisted, but one can argue that its prevalence is actually increasing mm-hmm. with uh, every decade. And genetic risk factors for depression have increased in the last 10,000 years, too, like the short allele right. of the serotonin. So, so th- that was a fundamental question that we tried to answer. How come? A uh, few things that uh, we came to conclude. Uh, number one, uh, major depressive disorder as a single biological entity based on all the neuroimaging studies, based on all genetic studies, based on the studies of of biochemistry and biomarker, does not exist. So major depressive disorder is a single biological entity. With almost complete certainty, we can say it does not exist. So we're, we're dealing with multitude of different conditions that have similar enough appearance that they can be assumed under the same descriptive umbrella but we're not dealing with a single condition. So that is really important. So there is no pathophysiology of depression. There is a pathophysiology of depressions. And what we try to find are some common denominators. What all these depressions have in common? Uh, Some of the things that, uh, and a lot of it has to do with with Chuck's work, that we have come to conclude is that uh, depression is definitely not only a brain disease. It is definitely a mind-body disease. And it is a condition where the communication between brain and body is uh, disrupted in a relatively enduring way. And it's not unidirectional. Uh, There are people who have depression who will have 
increased activity of hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and therefore will have very high levels of stress hormones. There are people who are depressed who have low levels of stress hormones. There are people who are depressed who will have uh, high serotonin levels in their brain. There are people who are depressed who have low serotonin uh, levels in their brain. Same is true for norepinephrine. In other words, uh, whichever biomarker, uh, or at least most of the ones that we have looked into, and even in terms of the pattern of the brain activity, there is no universal finding. We can find opposite findings in individuals uh, who have major depressive disorder. This sounds like a mess. It, it is a mess. mess. The, yeah. uh, th- that, that, is, that is the most succinct way of defining neurobiological research into major depressive disorder. It is a mess. And what we try to do is at least not make it less messy, mm-hmm. because that would be inappropriate, but rather to try to systematize that mess and, and provide all arguments and counter-arguments a, a different view of, of uh, uh, looking at depression. And uh, the suggestion is that these pathophysiological mechanisms that are involved in depression would probably not persist if they did not have another side. Yeah. And the flip side of all these pathophysiological mechanisms is that they're highly adaptive. The problem with depression is that these mechanisms that on their own in certain circumstances are adaptive lose their adaptive, adaptive capacity either in terms that they are overly pronounced, that they occur in appropriate times, that they uh, occur in, in appropriate context, or that they last much more than they should. In other words, if we are in some threatening or dangerous uh, situation, it is absolutely appropriate uh, to have increased cortisol in our blood. It is absolutely appropriate that sympathetic system becomes activated so that we can redistribute our blood in preparation for fight or flight response. It is absolutely appropriate to activate our immune system because if we sustain bodily injury, we will be, it's a preemptive strike, we will be already ready to fight infection. So all those are adaptive mechanisms. The problem is that in depression, although at a lower level, they are enduring. And when they endure, uh, they can be very much damaging and pathological processes that cannot only cause alteration in how we experience depression psychologically at at the cognitive and emotional level. They can actually be associated with disruption in bodily processes that uh, contribute to individuals who are depressed having higher likelihood of developing diabetes, higher likelihood of having abnormalities in their cholesterol, having cardiovascular disease, even cancer. So that is the aspect that I, that I think uh, – uh, yeah. w- would you agree with that, Yeah, Jeff? absolutely. And I, I think one of the other arguments we make in the book is that some of the adaptive value of depression may have, uh, pers- or may have evolved not, not to so much help us deal with other people but to deal with immune – with I call you know, the world of the microbes, right? Because so it, it turns out that although not all depression is related to like overactivity of the immune system um, – People with depression as a group tend to have that, and we've written about this a lot, and it's in the book, that it may be that one of the reasons that depression risk genes have persisted is because although they make you depressed, um, that in fact the, 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 the pattern of activation, of chemical activation in the body that occurs with depression helps you fight depression, uh, helps you fight uh, infection. So for instance, if you make a list of all the symptoms that happen to you when you're sick, and make a list of all the symptoms that happen to you when you're depressed, it turns out that there's almost complete overlap and some really weird ones. So, for instance, you know, when you're really sick, you tend to get a fever, right? So many studies have shown that medically healthy people with depression have an elevated body temperature. You treat, yeah. you treat the, the body temperature, it drops. I feel when I've gotten depressed in the past, especially when, it was, when I didn't know I was depressed, yeah. I thought I was sick. Yeah, exactly. So the, and yeah. the reason you did is because depression, we think, uh, I, I, I think that it, although not all depression is associated with increased like inflammation, I think depression evolved out of sickness and that it primarily evolved as a strategy for coping with the, with the microbial world, not the human world. And that, 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 if you, that what happens with depression is that um, in circumstances, and this is what Vlad alluded to, that in circumstances where your risk of death from infection gets increased, uh, you're not sick yet, but you 
you, because the brain and the body are these bi-directionally wired, you begin to activate all these same things. Your body temperature goes up, your cytokines go up, your, you begin to get the same kind of changes in your liver that you get when you're infected. Uh, it, it's sort of like, you know, if, if you're in a situation, you know, across typical human groups, across human evolution, if the stressors that still make us depressed today operate in that world, your risk of infectious death goes up enough that, um, that the ability to activate these pathways uh, becomes adaptive. There's a cost, but it becomes adaptive. And even depressive symptoms, which share a lot of overlap with, with uh, sickness, can be valuable, right? So you, you lay down, you conserve energy. I mean, this is a complex thing, but I mean, there's tons of pages on this in the book about all the ways in which that explains, you know. So for instance, if you, if you make a list of the genes that have been most often associated with depression, almost to a single one, they also protect you against some illness or other. Whatever form of the genes associated with depression, that's the form of the gene that in, in environments where there's still a high infectious burden, uh, if you've got that gene, you're more likely to live. I, it's really interesting. There's a whole literature on this. So, so this has been an argument of the book is that one of the arguments is that, we, you know, just as we need to expand depression beyond the brain, we need to actually expand it beyond the body, and we need to expand it beyond the human realm. Right? I mean, we think about depression mostly being related to you know, our interactions with other people, but there's a secret, quiet level here where the world of the bugs turns out to be. Like the, the stuff in our gut, the microbiome. Yeah, the microbiome. Yeah. So, so there's, there's two immune aspects to depression in the modern world. One is we think this ancient uh, association where depression evolved as as an adaptive survival strategy. Some folks went down and tested these ideas of ours in Bolivia a couple of years ago and looked at people. They weren't other gatherers, but they're way out in the jungle. They get depressed. They get their symptoms look the same as us. They get depressed over some of the same stuff. Just like here, depression is associated with this increased inflammation. Um, it's remarkable, and so it's not just that the modern world has caused this sort of discombobulation of the immune system and depression, but uh, we have altered our relationship with the microbial world so incredibly in the modern world. Uh, the good part is we're not, you know, until, you know, 1900, 50% of people born were dead by the age of 15 from infection. Thank God that that, you know, knock on wood is, is not going on now. But we kind of tossed the baby out with the bathwater, and we've so disrupted our relationship with the microbes within and without us that... Um, it's really played havoc with our immune systems because what happened was because all these bugs were always around and because most of them didn't kill you, you had to tolerate them. And over time, it looks like the immune system is like the economy. It likes to outsource things to cheaper places. So if you have to, if the immune system needs to learn what to tolerate and what to attack, uh, you know, instead of having to learn it all on its own, over time, if the, if the bugs that had to be tolerated were always there, they become the teachers of tolerance. And so you get this interactive effect, especially early in life, between the microbial environment and the human. And then you totally disrupt the microbial environment. And, you know, in the last 60, 70 years, the rates of every allergy, asthma, autoimmune condition have gone up thousands of percent. It's, it's an epidemic of, of immune dysregulation. One of the ways to get depressed is to have an, a dysregulated immune system. And you see rates of depression increasing. Just, you know, as places clean up and become Western in their lifestyle, people stop dying of infection, but they get this immediate rise in every type of autoimmune and allergic mm -hmm. condition, and you see a rise in depression. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, last question on this. Vlad, there's been a lot of churn of late in the media, a little bit of, little bit of a backlash against the hype over mindfulness. Um, you know, there's some, some people saying, in fact, some scientists recently wrote in, uh, including Willoughby, the aforementioned Willoughby uh -huh. Britton, who's a previous guest on this podcast, wrote an article saying that some of the science uh, are, are into mindfulness is not as good as it should be, and we don't even define mindfulness well enough, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this all just leads to a question for you. I've always been of the – I've always had the understanding that while the science around meditation is in its early stages, one of the areas where it's strongest is – as it pertains to depression and anxiety, uh, what's your view? Does depression and uh, does mindfulness meditation help really with um, uh, depression and anxiety? Uh, in in my experience, it does, and uh, uh, one can uh, read the literature from two perspectives. Uh, one can uh, read the literature that is uh, based on uh, well designed and executed studies, 
And it, it so happens that the, the better and the more uh, specific design of the study, the more consistency there is in positive results. On the other hand, whenever something becomes very popular, there is all kind of secondary research that takes place. And there's an attempt to commercialize it. And all of a sudden, mindfulness is now being used not only for depression and anxiety, where we have relatively robust evidence. Then it, it became used for uh, uh, dealing with stress. It became used for uh, dealing with sleep, uh, with sleep disturbances, uh, uh, for dealing with chronic pain and so forth. So uh, some of these derivatives are maybe, I'm not saying invalid, but not on as solid scientific ground. So uh, I would say that uh, although uh, they there are suspect quality uh, uh, research publications out there. I would not necessarily throw a blanket and say the entire scientific evaluation of mindfulness uh, meditation is invalid or, or we should give up on it or uh, it, it is an artifact. Uh, I, I would not agree with that kind of conclusion. Uh, uh, you guys have been great. Final question, though, just on uh, – for you, uh, because I said we would talk about it, yeah, the yeah, dark yeah. retreat. Yeah, what absolutely. is the dark retreat? Well, I didn't know about it either until I was down at uh, MD Anderson. So the dark retreat is MD Anderson in Houston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my buddy Alejandro down there. The, it's a, it's enigma practice for the Tibet, Tibetan aficionados in the in the crowd mostly. Um, so what they do is they put themselves in total darkness, uh, twenty four hours a day for how long? Forty nine days. What? Well, 49 days is the maximum length of time you can stay in the bardo, the, the intermediate stage between birth and death in Tibetan Buddhism, right? So, you know, after you die, um, you, 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 you shed your body, become this sort of, this sort of mind stream, spirity thing that races around and freaks out. And every seven days, if you haven't reincarnated, you die again in the bardo and you're reborn, right? You do that seven times and then you're, you're done for. You're, you're heading somewhere, up, down, sideways. But so, so there's a tie in there with the bardo state. Um, 49 days, total darkness. Uh, people slide. They've got a whole uh, – they've got a place in Colorado where they do this, I guess. I, I haven't seen it, but if, by description, they, 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 they slide the food under the door. You don't get any light, right? And so, of course, what happens – Do you have to do 49 days or can you do like a three-day thing? Uh, well, you know, I think that if – we should – you know, I still want to do this. Right? Yeah, I want to We're working on a new book that, that this would really – if you want to come join us, this would really be a deal. I told, and, can we shoot it? I mean, it's hard. Yeah, we yes, I think we, yes, I think we could probably shoot okay. it, right? So, so anyway – I don't have to do it for 49 no, days. No, they, I don't think they'd let you do it. For, I mean, because okay. what happens is people start hallucinating like mad. And, and the, from, so from a Buddhist perspective, the point is not to listen to the hallucinations as sort of messages from God, but to recognize that your mind is creating a whole entire world. And that when you come out of the dark retreat, you've now got solid evidence that, that what looks solid no, you, you saw the same thing. You know, two days in, and you're you're, you're you're talking to your dead grandma, and you realize, oh my God, my mind creates the world. So, especially certain schools of Buddhism that are more in that direction, this is very powerful. It's like you know, you think these things are solid. No, they're not. You just you know. So that's the point: is to learn to to see the arising of appearances and learn not to cling to them, and realize that they are in fact products of your mind that they're insubstantial. Um, so it's really interesting because, of course, in the psychedelic world, people would be looking for meaning in what arose because this is another way to induce those states. But from Buddhist perspective, uh, it's it's about recognizing the insubstantiality of the ego, and, and uh, yeah. So I mean, it's it's really fascinating, and and that's the extent of my experience. But we sort of have this open invitation, you know. Um, and I've kind of been putting them off because I've just been so swamped and stuff. I'm but, coming with you. All right. Seriously. All right. I'll tell my co-author that we're, we're back in business. Yeah, no, I'm this. bringing some cameras. Okay. We're Let's do this thing. Okay. I um, So I just finished writing a book that's coming out at New Year's, um, which is like an introduction to meditation for people. It's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. But yeah. I'm such a glutton for punishment that I actually just started working on the book after that. Okay. And it's about sort of I'm trying to <laughs> uh -huh. do for compassion practices yeah. what um, what has already been done for mindfulness, which is right. you create some hype and excitement around it. Right. What should I, I'm looking for great stories in the compassion world, uh, you know, around compassion practice. Well, who should I be talking to? Uh, I would talk to. Well, okay, so and I. Would, what are the What are the great stories? I mean, you well, probably, yeah, I, you know, I mean, yeah, we do have some really interesting stories. We have some really interesting stories from that when we did the foster kid study down yeah. in the depths of Atlanta. Uh, I mean, there were some really touching stories. Um, are, is that are they are those foster kids still being taught these practices? No, no, that's no, over. no. They, they the governor changed and that was put to rest. Um, do you know Geshe Love Song? 
Yeah, you know Geshe. Remember Geshe? Yeah, Geshe, I Geshe, Geshe. Yes, yes, yes. So at at Emory, quiet, yeah. modest guy runs yes. the universe. I'd start with him. They've runs the a, universe. Well, runs that universe, man. Um, and then of course the folks at Har- uh, the folks at Stanford, um, and of course Jinpa and uh, Jinpa is a former yeah. uh, guest on this podcast. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I know you know him. I, I'm very impressed with what's going on at Emory. They they're doing some really interesting stuff. They got this international thing where they're they're bringing compassion into K through twelve. They're they're doing and we're doing an interesting study where we're actually now I, I'm I'm working with the chaplains at Emory uh, and we are teaching the them compassion training and looking to see does that change patient outcomes because these guys at Emory they see hundred thousand patients a year and so we, we get this whole group of, of hospital chaplains and they're half of them are getting compassion training half aren't we're looking to see you know can you these guys are sort of the stormtroopers of compassion in the hospital can we really maximize their capacity to go in and do that so there's some really interesting stuff going on down there and there's some great stories from the chaplains about you know, really sick people in the hospital and them help using some of these sort of lojong practices to, to realign how they feel about their situation. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. You guys have oh, both been fantastic. You, oh, this is great. Thank, thank really you. What a good time. Really, yeah. really fun. Okay, so that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Please take a minute to leave us a rating and a review. And if you want to suggest topics or guests for the show, just hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Special thanks to Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan and the rest of the team here at ABC who uh, helped make this thing possible. And remember, we're now on TuneIn. You can hear our new episodes there five days early on Fridays through the end of this year. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.